Thank you. It's good to be back with you this morning. Every time I come back, though, I wonder what happened to half the congregation. So um, it must have been real dark this morning, so everybody slept in. Um, the upside and the downside of being around so long is I know a lot of songs. Or I've heard a lot of songs. And uh, when I begin to prepare a message and I start reading the scriptures, many times one of those lyrics will come to my mind. And this one just stuck in my mind, I know, I know, um, because as I'm looking at the section of uh, uh, Scripture that we're going to look at in 1 John chapter 5, and though we've not been in 1 John since 1971, it just seems that way, but as I began to look at this section, we know, we know, John, as he's beginning to wrap up this message, he wants people to know, we know. We know. And these things I know. My sins are forgiven. He lives in my heart. And I'm on my way to heaven. Are you? Are you? Personally, I like to have certainty in my life. I guess that's one of the reasons I preferred math classes over some of the other classes in school. Because as long as we were using the 10-digit number system, Two plus two always makes four. The Pythagorean theorem was always true. In a right triangle, A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Always true. I, I love the fact in math because there were rules and their results were certain. I know, I know that Jesus lives in my heart. I know that I'm forgiven. And I'm certain there's a place called heaven. I'm going there, not because of how good I am or how good I've been, but because of how good God is and how gracious he is to you and I. Let me remind you of the situation. We took a couple weeks off uh, to talk about Christmas, and then we talked about baptism and the communion for the baptismal service on the first day of the year. And then Tony jumped into 1 John last week and uh, covered some of the same stuff that we covered before from a different point of view. But remember that John is writing to a group of Christians who are now the second or third generation, second and third generation, removed from the time of Jesus. After he's ascended into heaven, it's about 50 years has taken place. A lot has happened in the world since then. Jerusalem had fallen to the Roman Empire after a long siege in which thousands of people died. They, they desecrated the temple, and then they came in and they destroyed the temple, and it has not been there since A.D. 70. The Jews persecuted, persecuted the Christians. The Romans were persecuting Christians. Most of the apostles, if not all of them, except John, had already died as martyrs for their faith in Jesus Christ. At this point in time, there were not very many eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry left other than John himself, who's probably in his 80s or 90s, a really old man for that day and age. He's writing to the church, he's an age minor, and probably 
the first, it first went to the church at Ephesus, and uh, a church that historians believe that John had spent some time there as the elder of that church. He is writing to refute a false doctrine that was cop- cropping up in the churches, most likely led by the influence of a modern thinker for that day by the name of Serenthus. It was the beginning of what was known as Gnosticism. The Gnostics were trying to turn the gospel of Jesus Christ into some mystical head game. According to them, salvation came through a special revelation that God gave to special people. And if you did the right thing, you could be one of those special people. According to them, your body and your spirit totally separate. The only part of you that could be saved is your spirit. Your body is absolutely sinful beyond redemption. So whatever you did in your body, it didn't matter as long as you knew the right thing. The Gnostics taught Jesus was just a man. And there's a $4 word to say what that thing is, and we'll just forget that. But he talked, they believed that Jesus was a person born of Mary and Joseph, but when he was baptized in the Jordan River, God sent the Spirit of Christ upon him. And for three years, the Spirit of Christ worked through this human being named Joseph, who was just a human being. But when it came time for the passion, because God couldn't be beaten, God couldn't die, that spirit went back to heaven, and Joseph, the son of Mary and Joseph, or Jesus, the son of Mary and Joseph, died and was buried, and, and that's where he is today, according to the Gnostics. John was a bit appalled by all of that, by that false doctrine. And and because he's the, this man and his people are teaching this, now people are beginning to have doubts about what they believe. Have you ever doubted since you became a believer? One of the writers I read this week said, every believer's had those moments when we've doubted what's true. What is really true? Who's right? Is everybody right? Why even John the Baptist, filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb? There came a moment when, towards the end of his life, he sent messengers to Jesus. Are you the one? Are you the one? In our world today, it's harder and harder to be sure of anything. I read this week that in 2007, when Drew Faust was installed as the first female president of Harvard University, a position that she held from 2007 to 2018, Harvard was founded in 1636 by the Puritan clergyman, the preacher, named John Harvard. It was founded for the express purpose to educate preachers so that when they went to preach, they were educated in the Word. It was really a Bible school to begin with. When she was delivering her inaugural speech, she called attention to the crest of the college, 
which bears the one word motto, veritas, Latin term for truth. She pointed out that the motto originally affirmed the school's quest for eternal truths and unassailable realities. Their motto was, we're going to preach, preach the truth. We're going to know the truth. She went on to announce a new understanding of that quest. She said, truth is an aspiration, not a possession. In this, we challenge those who would embrace such certainties. We must consider, commit ourselves to the uncomfortable position of doubt. That is probably one of the most highly regarded intellectual institutions in the world. And when they say you can't know anything for certain, now the ground is beginning to become a little unsettled, giving way. If the folks at Harvard don't know anything, what hope do we have? Good news. John tells us, because Jesus said it, there's some things that we can absolutely know beyond a shadow of a doubt and build our life on. John was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write some of these things that we know, things that we are certain about. As we read through this passage of Scripture, I'm going to suggest you underline some of these words. If you're following along in the notes in your in the, that are in the bulletin, or you have your Bible open. It's always great to bring your Bible to church. Verse 6 of chapter 5 said, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one, underline this, who testifies who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. Verse 7, for there are three that testify. Underline that word testify. Every time we come to it in that testimony. The Spirit and the water and the blood, these three agree. If we receive the testimony, underline of men, the testimony, underline that of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Whoever believes, underline that word, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Underline that again. Whoever does not believe, underline that, God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, again that word, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who, underline it, believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Testimony. As I said, Paul is saying we got a courtroom here and we got some witnesses and keep that thought in mind. We know, he said. We know, and he begins the verse 6 with this, that is, is, this is he who came. 
This is he who came. And I know that verse 6, we broke it into uh, a thought um, because this was all one letter. But you go back to verse 5, and it says this, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And then he goes on, This is he, Jesus, who came. This is he who came. Now, that's a phrase that we are tempted in the English language just to slip on by. We, yeah, Jesus came, the incarnation. We just had Christmas. We celebrated that. But it goes a little bit deeper than that when you begin to look at the tense in the Greek language. And the context and the verb tense would indicate a once-for-all coming into the world. A once-for-all, this is he who came. It goes back to chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. I think Tony was there last week. I tried to watch the video, but it was, never mind. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God sent his son. In verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This is he who came, the one who was sent from the Father. When, when John said this, this is he who came, he was declaring this truth that he's been declaring from the beginning of this book. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man who lived. He was a real man who lived. He's more than a man, and we'll get to that in a moment. Contrary to the new doctrine that the Gnostics were propagating, they denied the incarnation that God became flesh. John declares, this is he who came. This is he who promised, was promised. He really did live. He is a part of the history of the world. Jesus is a part of the history of the world. Even for the people who do not believe in that, when they wrote the date today, they acknowledge that Jesus is a part of history. This is the year of our Lord, 2023. A.D. 2023, the year of our Lord. Speaking about Jesus Christ, he lived. This is he who came is an official title for the Messiah. It is an official title for the promised one. The one that God said he would send. Look how John the Baptist, the forerunner, the one who came to proclaim that the Messiah was coming. In John 1.15 he said, John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. He who comes, there it is. Verse 27, chapter 1, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. He's speaking about the promised one, the one who's to come, and he came. Remember the Palm Sunday? 
Jesus comes riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey that had never been ridden. He's making the triumphal entry uh, from Bethany. He comes down the Mount of Olivet into Jerusalem. And in John 12, we read this, And they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the promised Messiah, the King of Israel. We know. We know because we have three witnesses. We know because of the three witnesses. He said in verse 7, there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And these three agree. If I'm reading this correctly, John is saying, you know what? There are some things that took place that I saw with my own eyes and heard with my own ears that lets me know that Jesus is who he said he was. We have three witnesses of who he was and what he is. He, the water. We won't take him in the order of the necessarily, but the water. There's a little bit of, you know, discussion. What do they mean by the water? Does that mean that he was born in the flesh? Because you, when you're, you come from the water in your mother's womb. Others look at this and they water the blood. They talk about the water and the blood that came from his side when he was pierced. But most scholars believe that what John was talking about is that day when he appeared at the Jordan River and said to John the Baptist, baptize me in water. John the Baptist came baptizing people for the repentance of sin. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. One coming after me greater than me. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. Jesus came and said, baptize me. You remember what happened next? Jesus comes up out of the water. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and sat upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And there was a voice that said, you are my son whom I love, who I love. With you I am well pleased. And thus began Jesus' earthly ministry as the Holy Spirit directed him out into the wilderness for a time of fasting and praying. Why was Jesus baptized? We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. What did John's baptism have to do with? Repentance, confession of sin, leaving behind a life of sin to live in victory over sin. That was what John was calling people to. To indicate by being submerged in the water their need to die to sin and to wash away their sin. Jesus identified himself with us as he was baptized in the Jordan River. Not because he needed to be cleansed of sin, but he had none. And he would live a life of no sin. And he identified with us, and he gave us a, a, a pattern to follow. But that was not enough, just the water. The second external and historical witness of who he was took place at the end of his ministry, the blood. The blood. Three years later, John was there at the foot of the cross where Jesus was being crucified. John was there 
when the noon sky became dark. For three hours, from noon to three o'clock, the sun was blotted out, darkness in the middle of the day. At three o'clock, he lifted himself up one more time and with a loud voice declared, It is finished. And he bowed his head and died. And at that moment, the earth shook, graves were opened, people who'd been dead came alive, and the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The centurion who was in charge of that crucifixion, standing next to the cross, as he watched Jesus bow his head and die, he made this declaration, surely he was the Son of God. And to make sure that Jesus was dead, they thrust the spear up under his ribcage and outflowed the water and the blood. What John came to understand, what took place was that Jesus, the pure and holy, the Son of God, took his blood into the holy place of heaven and God the Father accepted his sacrifice for your sins, for my sins. And three days later, Jesus rose from the grave, triumphant over death, triumphant over the grave. Jesus, John understood what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For what I received, I passed to you as of first importance. I want to make sure you hear this. First importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We sing two or three different forms of the song that ask the same question, what can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. John is saying, I was there. I saw it. I've seen evidence that he indeed was a man, yet he was the Son of God. There were miraculous manifestations to validate his person and his ministry. At the baptism, the voice of the Father, the presence of the Spirit, at the crucifixion, the darkness, the dead coming to life, the destruction of the veil of the temple. John knew Jesus died by what took place on the cross. All the pieces come together on Easter Sunday morning and then Sunday evening when Jesus suddenly appears in the room where the disciples are hiding. He indeed had returned from the dead. John says to these Christians and to us, that's all the proof I needed. God himself gave witness to the reality of the claims of Jesus. What better witness can you get? The baptism, the death, both facts witnessed by many, validated by the Spirit. Letter C is the Spirit. I mentioned the Holy Spirit descending at His baptism. But the testimony of the Holy Spirit is ongoing. Verse 6 said this, This is He who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. And the Spirit is is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. 
The Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. I'm reminded of Jesus' words in John 14. I am the way and the truth and the life. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Father, one God, three persons. Truth personified. Now, it's been a while since I've been in a courtroom to observe a trial. And I wasn't the one on trial. But I have been there when a witness has been sworn in years ago. I don't know if they do it the same way that they used to do it. Thinking about our culture, probably not. There was a time when they told you to lay your right hand on the Bible, raise your left hand, and swear so help you God that you will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. When the Holy Spirit comes into the courtroom as a testimony, he doesn't have to swear by anything because he is truth. He is truth. He is truth. The scripture says God is light and him is no darkness at all. Jesus told the apostles in the upper room at that last supper, John 15, 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. He gave them responsibility, go preach the good news, what you've seen. But he said, the Holy Spirit will be with you. He will bear witness. In chapter 16, verse 13, it says this, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will guide you into all truth. Here's a thought for you to think about. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and produces children of God. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and produces children of God because it's the Holy Spirit who reveals to you truth. Truth. In John 16, verse 8, it says this, And when He comes talking about the Holy Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. You read about in the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, disciples in that prayer meeting filled with the Holy Spirit, worshiping God in languages that they learned, and, and people from different nations, Jews from different nations, hearing those languages and those nations that they live in. What's going on here? And, and Peter begins to share with them from the Old Testament Scriptures who Jesus is, and that they had crucified the very Messiah that God had sent. What must we do to receive what you've received? He said you repent. Repent of your sins, be baptized, and you'll receive this gift. And suddenly, people who knew the Old Testament Scriptures 
people who knew the facts about Jesus being crucified, because it was only 40 days before then, and the news was everywhere. Suddenly their life was transformed, and 3,000 of them gave their heart to Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit opened their understanding to what truth is. I was born again as a young boy because the Holy Spirit opened my understanding to who Jesus is and that I needed a Savior. It's the Holy Spirit that convicted you of your need of a Savior. The Holy Spirit revealed to you what Jesus said is true, that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through Him. My reading this week, I came across a story about Governor Lou Wallace. He was the governor of the New Mexico Territory from 1878 to 1881. He wrote, I had always been an agnostic and denied Christianity. Robert C. Ingersoll, a famous agnostic, was one of my most intimate friends. He once suggested, See here, Wallace, you're a learned man and a thinker. Why don't you gather material and write a book to prove the falsity concerning Jesus Christ and that no such man ever lived, much less the author of the teachings found in the New Testament? Such a book would make you famous. It would be a masterpiece, a way of putting an end to the foolishness about the so-called Christ. The thought made a deep impression on me, and we discussed the possibility of such a book. I went to Indianapolis, my home, and told my wife what I intended. She was a member of the Methodist Church and naturally did not like my plan. But I decided to do it and began to collect material in libraries here and in the old world. I gathered everything over that period in which Jesus Christ, according to legend, should have lived. Several years were spent in this work. I had written nearly four chapters when it became clear to me that Jesus Christ was just as real a personality as Socrates, Plato, or Caesar. The conviction became a certainty. I knew that Jesus Christ had lived because the facts connected with the period in which he lived. I was in an uncomfortable position. I had begun to write a book to prove that Jesus Christ had never lived on earth. Now I was face to face with the fact he was just as historic a personage as Julius Caesar, Julius Caesar, Mark Anthony, Virgil, Dante, and a host of other men who had lived in the olden days. I asked myself candidly if he was a real person, and there was no doubt. Was he not then also the Son of God and the Savior of the world? Gradually the consciousness grew that since Jesus Christ was a real person, he was probably the one he claimed to be. I fell on my knees to pray for the first time in my life. And I asked God to reveal himself to me, forgive my sins, and help me be a follower of Christ. Toward the morning light, towards morning the light broke into my soul. I went into my bedroom, woke my wife, and told her I had received Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Oh, Lou, she said, I have prayed for this ever since you told me of your purpose to write this book, that you would find him while you wrote it. The Holy Spirit convicted him of truth. Lou Wallace did go on to write a very famous book, a masterpiece in the crowning glory of his life work. 
Of course, he changed the book he was originally writing and used all his research to write another book. And he wrote a novel. One critic in that era of time declared it to be the most influential Christian book of the 19th century. Perhaps you've seen the movie produced from the book. Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ, written by a man who did not believe that there was a God or a Jesus Christ, but the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, the water, the blood, the Spirit. They all testify to the reality of the person of Jesus Christ. John wants us to know because of the testimony of these three immutable, irrefutable witnesses. Number one, we know that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. God in the flesh, both God and man. John says in, in verse 10, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Secondly, we know that we are the children of God. We know that we are the children of God. That last part of verse 10, he has this testimony in himself. The NIV says he has this testimony in his heart. John wrote in his gospel, the first chapter, the 10th verse, to as many as received him, he gave power to become the sons of God. Look at the words of the Apostle Paul, first to the Romans. Romans 8, 15, 16. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our human spirit that we are children of God. He said the same thing to the Galatians in chapter 4, verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Daddy, Father. I don't know about you, but I'm so glad that Christianity is far more than a religion. It is a relationship. It is a relationship. John says the same thing that Paul is saying. When you put your faith in Jesus, you give him your heart, your life, you enter into a dynamic relationship where he lives in you. My life is in you, Lord. My hope is in you, Lord. There's a reason we sang the songs, because I knew who was, pre who was preaching today, what they were going to say. And I chose the songs today, my turn. I want you to go away. Jesus is the Son of God, and He lives in me. I'm a child of God. I'm a part of the kingdom. The Holy Spirit reveals to us that we are able to say, Daddy, Abba. Not with disrespect, not flippantly, but with wonder and awe that the God of all heaven wants to be our Father wants to walk with us, talk with us, and be a part of our life on an ongoing basis. Number three, we know. We know that we have eternal life. 
we know that we have eternal life. Reading verse 10 again. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony himself. Whoever does not believe, God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a son has life. Whoever does not have the son does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. John ends his gospel. He said, I wrote these things that you might know that Jesus is the Christ. And this letter, he writes this, I write to you who believe in the name that you may know that you have eternal life. Whoever has the Son, I want you to think about that statement. We all know what it is to have a possession. I have a car. I have a TV. I have lots of stuff. But we also know what it is to say I have a person. I have a spouse. I have a son. I have five daughters. Amen. It speaks of relationship. Relationship. Whoever has the Son, whoever has that relationship with the Father, whoever has the Son has life, he says. He has life. That is an important statement. Eternal life began the day you were born again. I have come that they might have life and life abundantly. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, but Christ has made you alive, Paul said to the Ephesians. Life without end. Jesus said in John chapter 11 to, to Martha when Lazarus was laying in the grave. She said, Jesus, if you'd been here, he would not have died. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, oh, I believe there's a resurrection day. Jesus was wanting her to understand life begins now, and your life will never end. Paul said, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. What you believe about Jesus Christ is the most important question and response of all your life. To reject Jesus, to not believe in him, means that right now you are spiritually dead and you will continue in that process of death forever in a place of eternal damnation where your soul will never die, and the fire will never go out. A place where you will remember everything that you ever heard about Jesus Christ and his love for you. This life, eternal life, is in Jesus and nowhere else. I know secular Society wants you to know there's many roads that lead to heaven. Jesus said, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The most important word is belief. 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 It means far more than saying with my head, yes, intellectually, yes, Jesus came to earth. He was born on Christmas, or what we call Christmas. He is the Son of God. The apostle said in his writings, even the demons believe that. But they don't take it to the next step. When John says believe, if you study the word, he means a permanent and continuous action. A permanent and continuous action. It's not just intellect. It is an action. It means to commit oneself to him as fully as one knows in faith reliance on him. To commit oneself continually, as fully as you know in your faith, in reliance on him. To believe is to count on him, to believe on him, to rest in him for your salvation. As I read this passage of scripture in 1 John chapter 5, I always hear the voice of Linfield Crowder, and I've shared with you before, Linfield Crowder, an evangelist who preached here back in the 70s and the 80s several times, who's now in heaven. He made a commitment to God when he became, was a young preacher that he would end every message that he preached with the same question. And he would, I mean, he'd yell it. I mean, he'd fill the auditorium no matter how, and I heard him in big auditoriums, and he'd fill them all. And he would yell out, eternity, eternity. Where will you spend eternity? And what will you do with Jesus Christ? Eternity, eternity. Where will you spend eternity? And what will you do with Jesus Christ? I believe that God gave to us a picture help us understand what it means to be in relationship with Jesus as our Lord and Savior. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32, it's connected back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, where, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. God spoke those words when he created Adam and Eve. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. A man leaves his father and mother, cleaves to his wife as the King James word, and the two become one flesh. The next note is this, by the contract of two wills, one new unit is formed. By the contract of two wills, one new unit is formed. A man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. The two become one. Many marriages don't survive because they don't do that first part. 
make a contract of our wills. I've committed myself to you. Marriage begins at a specific time. How many are married? How many know your anniversary date? How many have forgotten and got in trouble? (laughs) Nobody's confessing. So far, so good. I haven't forgotten. Marriage begins at a specific time, and it has an effect on the whole future. There's a definite commitment which marks a new way of life. A definite commitment that marks a new way of life. It does not matter how long the courtship. When the contract is signed, there's a new way of life. When I ask you, are you married? The answer may be yes, or the answer may be no. It can hardly be one not sure. And I'll know somebody's going to come and tell me, well, she's living there and I'm living here. But by law, if there hasn't been a divorce decree, you are married. You are married. When I enter into believing in Jesus, it's a covenant relationship. And it looks like this. My part of the covenant is this. As a believer, I recognize Christ's authority and I submit my will to him. If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. My part of the covenant, I recognize Christ's authority and submit my will to him. Jesus, as the groom, lovingly accepts me, calls me his own, and binds himself to me my promises that can never be broken. Among the last words that he spoke before ascending into heaven is, Go preach the gospel, and I will be with you until the end of the age. Hebrews 13 tells us, He said, I will never, never, never leave you nor forsake you. He binds himself to me by promises that can never be broken because he's not a man that he should lie. Whatever he says, he's going to do. It's the quality of commitment affirmed by a bride and groom as they give one another and receive from one another a ring as a sign of the vows they made. And it's, it's like this saying this, all that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. All that I am, I give to you. And all that I have, I share with you. Jesus did that for you. All that he had, he gave for you. What greater love has this that a man would lay down his life for another? And he will share everything he has. Being a believer has given him all of me. All of me. Whoever has a son has life. 
Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I know, I know, there's no doubt about it. He lives in my heart. I know, I know, my sins are forgiven. Do you know that today? You can know that before we leave this place. We're going to sing a prayer. Then we'll have a prayer and I'll give the announcements and we'll go do whatever we're going to do. But stand with me. And uh, if you're in a position today that when you came in, you didn't know if you were ready to go, as we sing this song, make yourself ready to go by saying, Jesus, thank you for the gift of faith to believe in the fact that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask you to forgive me, come into my heart, and be the Lord of who I am.